Montebello Church sermons. But I do want to thank you so much for those that came to the ordination service, the cards and the gifts. And I, I will tell you that the very best gift that we got of everything was the, the calendar. Some of you know about this calendar. Uh, we got the calendar, and on almost every day of the calendar, someone is praying for me and my family. And that was something that Michelle and I, we were so excited about. We were looking up dates like, oh, who's praying for us on our anniversary and who's praying for on our birthday and all of those things. We were really excited about it just to have, we know that you, you pray for us, but to have a tangible calendar was so reassuring and encouraging, especially with 2019 being so rough and for Michelle and I and the boys. And in fact, the four of us, we got together for our, our New Year's celebration, just the four of us got together. And we gleefully rejoiced and said goodbye and good riddance to 2019 because we were so and we were so excited about 2020. Uh, in fact, we were so certain that the rough times, difficult times, were kind of behind us that we actually made a decision and said, "Well, I think we're through the rough times." So we switched our insurance to a less expensive plan with a little higher deductible rate because we had so much confidence that that we were through the rough times and it would allow us to catch up on some of the bills from 2000, medical bills from 2019. So I woke up on, on New Year's Day, excited, hung out with the boys, had some great times with them. And then as the afternoon wore on, I ended up getting kind of sore in my back. And it went from being uncomfortable sore to being unbearable in a really short amount of time. And it didn't take long before I was actually just writhing in pain. But I decided I was just gonna stick it out because of the new health plan. I was underneath the new health plan, and I could just handle whatever it was that was coming and whatever was going on. Finally, I could not handle it, and I had Caleb take me to the emergency room, and uh, whatever unimaginable pain I was experiencing on our way there, we're just at the stoplight, we're not far, I can see the hospital, all of a sudden, all of that pain went into a cramp. Oh my Oh, mine, the pain that I felt. It hurt so much. It was so crazy. And I thought I went from feeling like I was going to, uh, to die to begging God to allow me to die because I just could not handle it. Uh, there, was so much, my, there was so much pain in my body that I ended up shaking like a leaf. My teeth were chattering like I was a nudist on the North Pole. It was just terrible. And some of you can probably guess that that night I gave birth to a bouncing baby kidney stone. Oh, my. Actually, the way that I felt uh, was, wasn't that I passed a kidney stone. As a reverend now, I feel like I passed a brimstone. That's what it felt like. <laughs> and I will tell you, I have a profound respect now for poultry because if that's how much it hurt to pass a little stone, I can't imagine what it's like for a chicken to lay an egg. Unbelievable. And despite all the exciting promises of the new year and confidence in your prayers and the reassurance that last year's trouble were behind us, it was a clear reminder that we can't tell what's going to happen in the future. We have no idea what surprises just lay around the corner. And in that same way, the elders, they can't know for sure what actually is going to be taking place in 2020. 
But in November, they got together, gathered together. They actually, it wasn't just the elders, they actually invited some other guys as well so that they would have an accurate picture, make sure that you know, if there's any un, uh, blind spots or any areas, hidden agendas, anything like that, that they would be able to help us out with that, for us to see things accurately, to figure out where's God been taking us, where are we at now, and where God, what does God want us to continue to go. And so in November, we got together, we prayed, we sought God's mind, and I don't have time to share all of the insights. In fact, uh, we're going to base most of this year's sermons on the insights that we received that weekend, but I wanted to give you just a, a quick overview. We recognize that God shaped this church with its own unique distinctives. We are a multi-generational, multicultural, many different mindsets, many different skill sets, but we are all one family. In fact, the family, the church family, was at the top of the list of distinctives that we started to go through. And the shape of this family continues and needs to continue being that we are full of grace, that we are mission-minded, that we are neighborhood-loving, that we are grounded in the Word, that we are prayer-centered, that we are relationship-honoring and Spirit-led followers of Jesus Christ. And two passages really emerge through our praying. And I just want to just read two of the passages. Actually, we went through Romans 8, and then we went through Hebrews 12. And I just want to just read two sections of, of Romans 8 and then one section in Hebrews. And I'm going to put it up on the board so that you can read with me. For those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we might also share in His glory. And then down to 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the past nor the present nor the, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Hebrews 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptable with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I'm going to say making comments about those passages, other than to simply say, in all of those passages, we see this, an unshakable confidence in the midst of trouble. An unshakable confidence no matter what is taking place. And when we look at 2020, it seems fairly obvious that we are going to be in for troubled times. In fact, since the retreat, it has just become clearer and clearer. 
And we see this massive divide, this massive division that seems to continue to go on. Think about it. Generational divides with OK Boomer and OK Zoomer. Political divides with pro-Trumpers and the never-Trumpers. Financial divides with the top 1% and the rest of us. The gender divides with the Me Too movement. The cultural divides with the comments of go back to your own country and fix your problems back in your country, which I am truly sure that the Native Americans sincerely wish that we would comply with that conviction. And even the divides among the evangelical church. In fact, since the days of the retreat, Christianity Today wrote an article that really exposed an incredible rift among evangelicals, and some harsh words have been exchanged. And even now, with what just took place just recently, divide between nations with this drone strike that's taken place. And if we end up building our church on any other identity than Christ, then we will not last long because the shaking has already begun. Paul addressed all of these differences in the Galatian church. This is how Paul took care of it. This is what he said. We are no longer... Jews or Greeks or slave or free or merely men or women, but we are all the same. We are Christians. We are one in Christ Jesus. It is almost impossible for us to understand how great a divide it was. The Jews never imagined in their wildest dreams that they would ever be sitting in a worship service with Gentiles. It was the furthest thing from their mind. These divisions were massive, and Paul continues to insist on bringing the church back to a larger and unshakable identity, that no matter what differences, no matter what our past is, no matter how we think about the world differently, this identity, identity unifies us all. So that's our plan for 2020, is to secure us to the very things that won't be shaken, no matter what events or differences take place and to offer the world a secure family of believers in an unstable and deeply divided world. A place of truth, a place of love, a place that, that gives an alternative to the lies and the hatred. And so next week, we're beginning with the basics. Vince Lombardi was one of the greatest football coaches ever, and he coached the Green Bay Packers, and they were a dominant force, and he didn't ever take anything for granted. He knew to build a solid team, you had to not take anything for granted. So famously, the story is told that he would come in on the first day of training to these professional football players, and he would grab a football, and he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. Go back to the basics, to the very beginning, and for us to settle back down to the basics. So we talked to the, after this retreat, we talked to the ministry team leaders, we talked about it, realized that one of those basics is love. So for the month of February, we are going to be having love month. I did Closer? Was that closer? Was that, I'm in the close? Love month. It's that. So we also realized if we're going to talk about love month, then we also have to talk about its companion, and so for the month of January, you're going to be talking about truth. So the truth and love are kind of the companions together. And so 
I simply want to give a brief overview of the relationship between truth and love and how they depend on each other, how they really are necessary. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 3. And if you would stand with me as we read this passage, just four verses. Paul is writing to a young pastor, obviously probably newly ordained, and he's stuck in a church that's being torn apart by controversy and infighting. And he writes this, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay here in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Dear God, we live in spooky times. Nations threatening each other. Anger is a constant feature in the news. Divisions grow more severe in a world that is desperate for being loved, that even when we reach out to love them, we are faced with the scrutiny of a suspicious world. Strengthen us so that we might be a shelter in a storm, a safe haven for those who are just weary and worn out. May our unity be real unity that is planted in truth and in love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the movie is, I guess, a superhero movie of sorts, but it doesn't have capes and spandex, but it is filled with people with extraordinary powers. Some of them are just incredible, but the one that really grabbed hold of me, the one that spooked me and brought me to really be kind of disturbed by this power, and it was the power of someone who had the ability to tap into someone's brain and to alter their reality, to trick them into opening fire on one of their own allies, jumping off a building because they really were convinced that they could fly. It was disturbing to realize how fragile that is, how, how our grasp on reality is. If you can control my view of reality, it doesn't matter how advanced my weapons are or the size of my army, you will always win. That's why the enemy so often employs that strategy, because lies are so incredibly powerful. And we believe that all we simply need is the truth to defeat the lies. But the problem is, the truth doesn't go far enough. Let, let me see if I can prove it. You know the truth that sugar does heavy, heavy damage to our well-being. And avoiding it for the rest of your days would vastly improve your health. And yet, we still hold on to it. Watching too much television, getting good exercise, saving instead of spending, not losing our temper, they're all things that we know are true, and yet, the truth just isn't enough. James goes so far as to say that the demons know the truth. They have fantastic theology, and yet they remain unchanged. Satan is unafraid to use the truth. He wasn't lying when he told Adam and Eve, hey, if you eat this forbidden fruit, then your eyes will be open and you'll know the difference between good and bad. In fact, Satan went out of his way to not just use truth, but use scripture against Jesus. 
Understand that the truth is better than the lie, but the truth doesn't go far enough. Let me see if I can explain it this way. God is an incredible creator who made amazing things. If you've ever been out hiking or running in the woods, and all of a sudden you come around the corner, and all of a sudden right in front of you is a deer. And there's just that moment where it's not moving, and it's looking at you, and you're able to just be so close to nature. It is breathtaking. Or at a time, I remember Michelle and I, I was teaching her how to snorkel, and we were were out there, and, and all of a sudden we came across a whole pod of dolphins, spinner dolphins. And we were able to swim in their stream and they were playing with us. And so where they would swim, we could just kind of like swim alongside of them with the baby dolphins and the spinner dolphins spinning over top of us. And it was breathtaking. It was so amazing. Or one of those incredible sunsets or the intricacies of a DNA strand or a moving piece of music. But the problem with it is that we end up instead of getting drawn closer to the creator behind it all, we stop short and we only give our admiration to the creature and not the creator. In the same way, truth is incredible. The beauty of math, someone was showing me that they were making a video of a bouncing ball and they showed how they were able to duplicate what real life looks like by using a math formula. I was just blown away by the fact that a bouncing ball is being able to be reduced down to a math formula, or the intricacies of gravity, or the sunning scale of stars, they all fall short of truth's ultimate goal. Understand that truth's goal is not to make you smarter. Paul wants Timothy to stay in emphasis, to combat the lies, and to establish the truth, and here is the truth's goal. The truth's goal is love. Truth is a servant of love. The real purpose of all truth is to display more of who God is and to stir in us a greater love for Him. Truth's goal is not finished until it encourages a longing and a delight in us for the God who is behind that truth, which ultimately moves us to express that delight in worship and in action. Truth, when it's allowed to finish its, to fulfill its purpose, causes love to grow and to flourish into transformation. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that love rejoices in the truth because it knows that truth will end up causing more love, more truth, more love. And it doesn't just stop there. Love actually opens the door for love to grow and to flourish. Jesus, when he meets Zacchaeus, he loves him, cares for him, shows that he accepts Zacchaeus by saying, I need to go to your house and to eat with you, which was a clear sign to everybody that he was endorsing this man, that he was lovingly embracing this man, this man who rightfully had assumed that he would be rejected by Jesus. And Jesus never preaches a sermon, never makes a critical comment. Jesus only accepts Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus repents. The woman caught in adultery, only after she receives his forgiveness and acceptance does he make a comment about her sin. The prodigal son, who's welcomed and embraced and accepted before he can utter a word of repentance, a woman who washes her feet 
you know, Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with, his, with her hair. Simon ends up criticizing her, but Jesus accepts her, embraces her, and ends up standing against Simon, who wants Jesus to condemn this woman. Instead, he criticizes and condemns Simon. Listen to this carefully. A loving embrace comes before repentance. Romans 2, 4 says it this way. Do you disrespect God's great kindness and his favor? Do you disrespect God when he's patient with you? Don't you realize that God's kindness is meant to turn you away from your sin? Don't you understand that his kindness is the thing that leads us to repentance? But we don't. There are so many times when we miss it, when we don't understand, when we don't grab hold of it, and we ignore it. Even though it worked for us, we don't end up showing the same thing to others. Her name was Leslie. She said growing up, she knew something wasn't right. She just didn't feel like she fit in her skin. She said back in the 80s, transgenderism just wasn't talked about, and she came to the place where she was suicidal. But suddenly, in the midst of all of it, God gave her the reassurance that she was going to be okay. And so she went to her pastor with this confidence that God had given her. And then she said to him, look, this is something that I'm battling with, and I don't know what to do with it. And she said she was escorted out of the church and asked to never come back again. Does that sound like the love that rejoices in the truth? Or do we end up attaching conditions to our love? Do we attach strings and terms that have to be met? Isn't that the point that Paul is making? Aren't we disrespecting the patience and the kindness that he has given us? Understand, recently in, in a poll, 83% of all homosexuals at one point in time attended a church. And you say, oh, well, they're not attending the church anymore because, because you know, the doctrinal differences. They followed up in the survey and found that only 3% of those 83 had left over doctrine. We can't miss the opportunity that God has given us to pass on this divine, breathtaking love that he has received. But instead, so often we make love into a weapon. We make our love dependent on you agreeing with the truth that we are convinced of. But is that the way that Jesus loved? Let me ask this question. Did Jesus love people he didn't agree with? Then why are we shocked when we violate the nature of the love that we've been given and we never see Christ's love transform people to the truth? The way to avoid divisions is not to only allow people in the church who vote like you and dress like you and think like you. How in the world does that show super, that the supernatural has occurred among us? Doesn't it make you actually ponder whether or not the love that we have received was really from God or was it some fake that we've convinced ourselves of? Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, then, then what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? 
You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The kind of love that we have received is the kind of love we need to be loving others with. And I must say, you have over and over and over again. Someone, when I'm standing up here, I can sometimes, oftentimes see people that walk in and I know their story. And I know that you guys know their story. And you know it's not a pretty story. And there are times where I get a little nervous, like I wonder what's going to happen. After all, we're a Baptist church. I'm not positive how that's going to go down, how it's going to happen, how people are going to react. What are they going to do? And over and over again, in fact, I remember at one point in time, a man came forward and uh, I had had a relationship with him and it was pretty clear that he had made some very, very different choices. And, and so he came and, and he met with me, gave him a big hug and, and, and he said, I was terrified to talk to you. I said, why? And he said, oh, I thought with all the new changes and stuff that I've made that you would just reject me, that you wouldn't love me. And I was like, no, I love you no matter what choices you've made and no matter how things are going. I, I, I love you no matter what. And, and we talked and I said, but I would really like to know like, what, what brought you to this place, what, what bring you to this decision. And so he said, okay, we'll get together and we'll talk and, and we'll figure that out. And this is what I watched because I was busy doing other stuff and I was watching him. And person after person after person in this church would go over and talk to him, give him a big hug, and it was very clear that the talk that I had wanted to have, y'all were having with him. You were having this amazing conversation. And by the time I got to him, he was like, I'm good. I'm fine. I got everything figured out. Because you had been so loving, so kind, so caring. You had embraced and you had shown both the truth and the love. When our love encourages others to feel safe, it leads people so that they can be vulnerable and when they're vulnerable, they can be honest. And then the truth leads back to love. But what's taking place in this passage? These people in this church were doing the opposite. They were putting themselves first. They wanted to become the grand poobah. They wanted to be the teachers of the law, the expert in religious issues. And they got everybody distracted from what God was wanting them to do and instead focused on, among other things, genealogies. That means that these people had come through the scriptures and they had mapped out all the family trees in the Bible so that they could figure out for themselves who in the church could trace their heritage back to which royal biblical line. Oh, it made them look smart and like masters of the word. But Paul says in verse 7 that they who want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they're so confidently affirming. And what they have done is they had caused empty speculations that opened to the door for those who had the right pedigree to be arrogant and those like the Gentiles who had no Jewish pedigree to be filled with shame. And it emphasized and showed and focused on the differences. It didn't promote vulnerability or grace. Instead, the only thing that it promoted was those people's ego. And that's why Paul draws such a contrast, saying this is my and Timothy's goal in telling you the truth. Our goal in telling the truth is love. Love that springs out of a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere and genuine faith. A faith that God could really do what he said he would do. 
oftentimes we have a tendency to go, well, I'm a little bit more of a truth person. I'm more, a little bit more of a love person. But actually, Scripture seems to reframe it in a different way. That true truth, real truth, when it's given room to fulfill its goal, opens the door to sincere faith. Recently, I read online this testimony. I was riding on a subway in New York. People were sitting there quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting their eyes. Resting their eyes. It was a calm and peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered the, the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me, closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing other people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet this man sitting next to me did absolutely nothing. It was difficult for me not to feel irritated. I couldn't believe that he would be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally... With what I felt was an unusual amount of patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people, and I'm wondering if you could control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as though he had come to consciousness of a situation for the first time, and he said softly, Oh, yeah, I, I guess you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago, and I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. The man writes, suddenly, I saw things differently. I saw differently. I thought differently. I felt differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was so filled with that man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion and love flowed freely. Your wife just died? Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? And everything changed in an instant. The truth, the truth enabled love to be embraced. Instead of judgment, it was replaced with compassion. All because this man took the time to hear the truth and to join this man on his hurting journey. And number two, true love opens the door for truth in his unwavering, in the truth, no matter what the truth is or what decisions have been made once the truth has been exposed. Some African-American women were sitting down together to celebrate one of their birthdays. A man sitting at the table next to them got up and kind of got swept up in the joy that radiated from these women. And then he discovered their reason for their little party and he burst into a rousing song of happy birthday that caused the whole restaurant to loudly join the celebration. After the meal, as the women were leaving the restaurant, they saw their birthday singer man sitting on the steps outside the restaurant. And they went over to him and they thanked him again and they complimented him on his amazing voice. And they said, you have to come to our church. We will get you in the choir. Normally, he said, I would have dismissed it, but love encourages truth. And so he said, well, I would love to, but I can't. You see, ladies, I'm gay. And they looked at each other. They pondered this for a moment. And finally, they looked back at him, and they said, well, we will receive you. We will receive you. 
his response to that? He said, when I heard this, I was so stoked because I knew, I knew that they didn't think it was cool that I was gay. That was something I knew they were not down with, but they wanted me at their church. I will never forget that. We will receive you. My friends, as the elders prayed it through, I cannot offer you any reassurance that by the end of 2020, what will still be standing. History tells us that many empires have gone before us, kingdoms that dominated the world, military forces that seemed invincible, Egypt, Persia, Babylon, Greece, Rome, Britain. Today, they are merely shadows of their former selves. But there is a kingdom that remains, a worldwide kingdom that still stands despite the foolishness, despite the selfishness, despite the sinfulness. It is the one that still receives us. It is uncompromised in the truth of God and uncompromised in the love of God, both feeding off of each other, growing in power and in its impact. For us to dedicate ourselves to anything else is folly. Because in the grand scope of things, we are simply a passing vapor here today and gone tomorrow. But we can be part of something larger, something that will last, something that will matter for all of eternity, that this world is crying out for. Are we going to spend more time just being involved in foolish distractions that continue to pull us away from what God has called us to do? In these uncertain times where lies and hatred is so dominant. The world is searching, starving for the very things that we are abundantly blessed with. This is the year of all the years that they need us. Michael Ramson pointed out to me the works of the great contemporary philosophers. Maybe you've heard of them, the Black Eyed Peas. And one of their key works is called Where is the love? I want to share just a portion of it with you. What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mamas. I think the whole world's addicted to the drama, only attracted to the things that'll bring a trauma. But if you only have love for your own race, then you will only leave space to discriminate. And to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate. Madness is what you demonstrate. And that's exactly how love works. That's exactly how anger works and operates. People killing, people dying, children hurt, and you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? And would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send us some guidance from above, because people got me, people got me questioning, where is the love? I feel the weight of the world on my shoulder as I get older People get colder. Most of us only care about money-making. Selfishness got us following the wrong direction. The wrong information always shown by the media. Negative images is the main criteria. Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria. Kids want to act like what they see in the cinema. Whatever happened to the values of humanity, whatever happened to the fairness and equality, instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity, lack of understanding leading us away from unity. And here's the most vital part. These words expose their pleading. The truth is kept secret and swept under the rug. 
If you have never known truth, then you have never known love. And if you've never known love, then you've never known God. Whoa, where is the love? I just don't know. Let's pray. Dear God, we hear that question. We hear that question behind every headline, behind every comment that's made. Father, we long to be the church that answers that question. We want to be the answer to that question. Where is the love and where is the truth? Father, may we be that place. Protect us from the times that we do foolish things as we attempt to clumsily follow after you, but we have the right heart. Take the times that despite our good intentions, we say or do the wrong things and offend someone and redeem them. Turn them something into beautiful out of the ashes that are left behind. But God, may you protect us from the times that we refuse to love all the way to the truth and take truth, but stop short of allowing it to accomplish its goal of drawing us into a deeper love for you and for those around us. Father, may we be the church that makes the difference. May this year be one we look back on and realize what things have changed. Dear God, we ask right now that you would allow us to go into the community and for us to love the way that we've been loved, for us to be uncompromising in the truth, but for it to be the kind of truth that opens up more love. Allow us, Father, to be the kingdom that is unshakable. And Father, may we, as the scriptures say, be so blessed by that unshakable kingdom that we cannot help but worship you with reverence and awe because, God, you are the consuming fire. Montebello Church Sermons.